Hey listeners, this is Loam editor Kailea Frederick. Thanks for tuning into Loam Listen with Emilio Freeman. To continue supporting us and showing up as an independent publishing and media company, we are asking for your support. If you enjoy our audio or publishing offerings, please consider visiting our Patreon where you can become a Loam member. For as little as $4 a month, you will receive a monthly curated missive that includes early access to all our publications and products, along with first calls for submissions and other small gifts. Find us at patreon.com slash loamlove. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Loam listeners. I'm Amiria Freeman, and you're listening to Loam Listen, your home for playful, juicy conversations on how we can reimagine the ways we live and relate to each other to survive and thrive within and beyond this moment. Every episode, join me and heartful, spirit-forward guests to learn how we can create the loamy soil from which new worlds can bloom. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Daryl Scott. Daryl is a designer, sustainability scientist, and the founder of Earth and Color, an emerging media platform and creative studio focused on Black culture, community healing, and the natural world. Through creative storytelling and nature experiences, Earth and Color celebrates Black culture connections to nature and helps us heal with the Earth. Daryl is on a personal mission to cultivate collective healing, spark earth curiosity, and nurture deep joy in the Black community. She's a tea fanatic and loves developing plant-forward recipes. You can check out those recipes and so much more at earthandcolor.co. For too long, Black folks and their experiences have been erased from environmental movements, histories, and more prompting Black people to give birth to our own spaces and projects to remember and reclaim the relationship between Blackness and greenness. In our conversation, Daryl and I break down our work to birth a movement to unearth and heal Black people's kinship with the more-than-human world. We explore everything from the role of accomplices within Black-led spaces to unpacking how Daryl holds both the reality of Black trauma in natural spaces and the desire to engender joyous Black experiences with the Earth. Let's dive in. Hi, Daryl. Welcome to Loam Listen. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very, very well and happy to be here in conversation with you. You know, I have so much love for you, Amirio. <laughs> No, I am beyond excited to have you on the podcast and we're like chit-chatting a little bit before recording and we're just like, there's so much to unpack, so much to unravel and I feel it's going to be one of the juicier episodes and I'm just particularly excited to have you on because I've been following your work with Earth and Color. We're going to talk about what that is in a little bit, um, but I'm following your journey with this project and this effort for so long and it's been so beautiful just seeing the full circle and honestly just been it's uh been beautiful like seeing this sort of like moment arise where it feels like 
so many black people are just like popping up out of like nowhere it seems like mm-hmm. and really just like reclaiming um black people's connection to the more than human world to nature to the earth mm-hmm. and it's honestly been just kind of intoxicating just sort of like waiting in this moment and being like holy shit like I feel so seen I feel so heard mm-hmm. um and it honestly feels like a movement is being birthed where black people are fully just like taking up space and environmental spaces and other spaces and I truly honestly like see you as being like one of the vanguards of this movement. Oh. I think for your work, you're just doing such incredible work to um, just like reclaim this connection between blackness and greenness. Mm-hmm. So I'm just so excited to have you on and talk about all the fabulous work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that framing and that introduction. Yeah. And just for the benefit of the audience and to get us started, um, who are you and what do you do? Yeah. I always answer this question in different ways, but I think I can start with saying I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a lover. I'm a creative. I'm a designer and I'm a founder and a sustainability scientist. And I carry all of that with me through my work. Um, And Earth and Color is my passion project and my life's work. And it's a emerging media platform and creative studio that's really about celebrating Black cultural connections to the earth and helping us heal with the earth. And we do that through creative storytelling and immersive nature experiences. Yeah. And I would love for you to like dive in a little bit more deeply into what Earth and Color is, what you guys are doing, all the projects that have come out of this sort of effort. Um, And while you're doing that, I would also love to know more about the name Earth and Color. When I first heard the name, I was just sort of like, ooh, I'm getting all the best like Afrofuturistic vibes. Like immediately I thought of like Black Planet, um, the sort of like (laughs) social media website. I also thought of this incredible song by African Bombada um, and the Soul Sonic Force called Planet Rock. And just the name Earth and Color, like I immediately think of like just a planet of like nothing but people who look like us uh, or connecting to more, (laughs) uh, more than human world. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about Earth and Color, what you guys are doing, all the projects that have spawned out of this effort um, and also where the name Earth and Color come from and what is that name trying to evoke? Absolutely. I guess I can start by just talking about the founding story of Earth and Color and all of that is kind of interwoven um, together. So I studied Earth Systems at Stanford University, and then I went on to get my master's in sustainability science and practice. And so I was in Stanford School of Earth for six years, and being a Black woman in the School of Earth and looking around my classrooms every quarter and not really seeing people who look like me teaching or learning, I really early on struggled with that. Um, But I found, you know, classmates who were Black or BIPOC who also were seeing the same things that I was seeing. And we started to just like create. So I created a a camping trips to Yosemite for Black folks. We went to Yosemite and met um, Black Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. And we had an amazing time. And Shelton just told us about the Black history of the national parks and really encouraged us to reclaim our birthright, reclaim our connection to the natural world. 
world. So that was something that I did while at Stanford. I did green weeks. I did just a range of things that were really about helping us to see blackness and greenness as something that is inextricably linked, something that is like beautiful and that can coexist now and in the future. And so me and one of my classmates, I always have to shout her out, Stephanie Fisher. She's another black woman who was studying earth systems with me. We were kind of on the same path and we converged to create the Earth and Color Art Festival. And I remember we were just like, oh, we want to create a space where BIPOC voices are centered and celebrated. Let's have an Earth Day festival, but let's center our culture. Let's center environmental justice. Let's center the earth in a way that is not commonly centered in the environmental movement. And so we're sitting at the table outside and we're going back and forth and brainstorming. And it was it was just a moment, like a eureka moment of like earth and color. And we were just like earth and color, earth in color. We were like earth in color. And I just remember that moment of us realizing this is what it needs to be named. And like, there's just so much wrapped up into kind of what that title means. So, you know, the in color part, I mean, it definitely gives me in living color vibes, but <laughs> it definitely is... I often use the term, I would love to add color, you know, to maybe a sentence or to um, just, you know, kind of anything that I'm talking about. And when you think of the word add color, it's shedding light, it's illuminating, it's clarifying a subject or kind of supplementing. And when I think of earth and color, it's literally about not only like bringing black and brown histories and experiences and perspectives into what we understand about the earth and human nature connection. But it's literally also about shedding light on the ways, what we say earth and color, we've been sustainable, you know? And so it's, it's both like the title is really showing people us bringing together blackness and greenness, but it also shows the movement that we're trying to facilitate um, of really bringing greenness and blackness together. And so we started with the Earth and Color Art Festival. It was this magical festival. Emirio, you remember uh, that? I mean, I guess I we connected when I was coming up with the festival and you supported with art and in photos, which helped us to really show what we meant by Earth and Color. And it was this magical festival on the Stanford farm. It was the most people of color I'd ever seen on the Stanford farm. And it is still making waves today. That was in 2018. And there are still students who are reaching out to us kind of saying, oh, we want to recreate what you did or wow, you really changed our perceptions of the farm and in natural spaces. And so just seeing the impact of the festival. I mean, we had Chef Bryant Terry, he was making vegan food and he brought just a really diverse group of chefs to come in and, and cook cuisines from um, different diasporas in the world. We had Ari Lennox perform at the end of the night. We had, um, shout out to Ari Lennox. We had a professor from um, San Jose State, I think, and she came and taught indigenous yarn painting. And it was just like such a beautiful experience. And in that moment, I was like, oh, we, we have to do something beyond this festival. We need to have more festivals. But as I was graduating, I was like, I don't want to work on anything else but Earth and Color. So that's kind of the story of Earth and Color and um, kind of how we got to where we are today. But, you know, upon graduating, it was 2019. And so that was two years ago. I really 
started thinking about what is the essence of earth and color? What are we really trying to do? Um, and I'm also a designer, like I said at the beginning. And so I really see all of the work that I do kind of flowing through me through that lens. I'm a creative. And so earth and color has in a lot of ways been transforming from this amazing festival to a creative media studio. And so we have a range of creative storytelling projects and when it's safe again, nature experiences like the earth and color art festival, like the dinner in the woods that we had in 2019. Um, but due to COVID, we have really focused in on our creative storytelling projects. And our first project that we put out is Radical Magazine. And it's this 90 plus page magazine, but it's honestly more than that. It's a guidebook. It's a workbook. It's an anthology. It's an ode to Blackness and greenness. And it's really about centering our culture, Black culture, in the environment and sustainability in a way that has never been done before, but also in a way that's so damn beautiful that just makes the future irresistible. It makes this movement something that everyone wants to kind of grab onto. So that's what we're trying to embody in everything that we do. And I just want to give a shout out to Radical. I showed Daryl earlier. I have my own copy and just like <laughs> the experience of getting it before even reading anything, I just like flipped through the pages because it is so stunning and so beautiful. And it just like feels like a piece of art more than anything. Um, I'm about to move later in the summer and like already in my head, I'm kind of like, how do I display this with like all my other beautiful <laughs> like books that I have that I want to like showcase. Um, and then like also like what's so striking about it, it's that it's so black as fuck and on the publicly <laughs> just like for us. Um, like in the issue, you have like um, a Mancala set that you can take out and like you're asked to like use natural found objects to play with it. And I was like, this is so black. Um, <laughs> at a certain point, there's like a small ode to like the plastic bag and like all the ways like black people have like repurposed the plastic bag to sort of like um, just like live their daily lives. And I was like, yes, finally, that part of black life and culture has been like memorialized and archived in some way. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, it's such a stunning piece of work. And I kind of want to go back a little bit. You mentioned your time at Stanford and you mentioned sort of the ways that you initially were engaging with environmental spaces and the environmental movement. Um, and what's so interesting was that you sort of made this conscious decision to say, this movement, these spaces are in a way insufficient. So I need to like birth something of my own. And mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about why those spaces and these current movements do feel so insufficient and do um, lack, as you said, a certain color and a certain flavor and a certain lens and analysis that make these environmental histories and legacies and what have you a little bit more complete. Um, so yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about that. Why are these spaces and these movements as is um, so insufficient that we have to build our own spaces and movements? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. And it's one that I definitely was grappling with as a sophomore at Stanford and a junior and Earth and Color is my answer to that. Well, first I'll say that the environmental movement, I mean, the United States or what we call the United States is built on genocide, dispossession, forced labor. And that is something that permeates every single system, every single thing that we do, like 
we're built on this foundation. And so the environmental movement is a part of that, that that's the foundation of the environmental movement. And it's definitely something that when I first studied earth systems, I didn't really think about history. I didn't really think about, you know, what it means to be black in the environmental movement. And I realized that in a lot of ways (laughs) we were, we were kind of forgetting about the people and the culture um, side of the environmental movement. I think there was a lot of work to, you know, save certain species or, um, you know, save or, you know, remediate soil or, you know, do specific things that weren't looking holistically about like, like at the ways that humans and specifically a diverse spread of humans from a range of cultures were engaging with or have been engaging with the natural world. And so I think in a lot of ways, the current environmental movement is is not necessarily holistically um, equipped to solve what I think is, you know, one of the the biggest um, existential crises of in human history. And I think it's because they're not really taking this intersectional perspective on um, this movement. And you know, when I would also kind of actively engage in the Black community, um, I also realized that there was what I call a lot of environmental apathy. And it's very much rooted in anti-Black racism and violence. Literally, nature is often the backdrop of violence and, you know, oppression that folks experience, like Black folks experience, Indigenous folks experience, people of color experience. And so it's really hard to kind of separate that trauma and fear and violence from a liberated and joyous, you know, connection to the natural world. And that's what I saw. I mean, people would tell me, Daryl, Black people don't go camping. Daryl, Black people don't eat kale. Daryl, like, what you mean? Like, there you go, hugging trees. There you, like, literally everything under the sun. And they're my friends. They were joking. But I was also like, hold on. Let me ask why. Like, what's underneath that? And I realized that there is a lot of trauma and, and, really, I I see it as my personal mission to help the Black community heal what I call, you know, environmental apathy, but it's really inherited nature-related traumas that really are kind of woven into how we engage with the natural world subconsciously. Um, So it's almost like a reprogramming. So to circle back, (laughs) you know, I think that these spaces that Earth and Color is is creating and trying to create are necessary because it's really an intervention into this system that really wasn't built for us. You know, Earth and Color in a lot of ways is creating spaces that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a group of Black people creating it. You know, the environmental movement is literally not set up to, um, you know, facilitate our healing, our liberation. So we had to create spaces for us to do that ourselves. Ooh, that was a testimony. And I love that you brought up this piece around sort of all these histories and structures that have made it so a lot of Black people are kind of like, yeah, I don't really fuck with that nature shit. And I'm really wondering, <laughs> how do you and your team sort of reconcile with that? Because on one hand, it's like, we should have the right to have like these beautiful, joyous, pleasurable um, intimacy with the more than human world because like those have always been there, like pre-white supremacy, pre-colonialism, like those mm-hmm. have always been there and in a lot of ways have been, um, are still here, you know? Like I have so many stories in my own family of like 
Mm-hmm. Rather gardening and that being like really joyous and pleasurable for him. Yes. Like that. Yes. Um, but then I'm always kind of like, damn, it is so real that in the same ways that for a lot of indigenous folks, their history has been so connected to um, trauma on land for black folks, like our history in the US at least has been so deeply connected to a history of like trauma on land and on water. Mm-hmm. There are very real stories about, you know, older Black folks being like, yeah, I don't go to the woods because I saw mm-hmm. a person in my community be like Lynch in that same part of the woods. So how do you grapple with that? Like, how does all the, how does that tension sit with you? And how do you um, like navigate it, like holding both of those truths and narratives? So the ways that we really grapple with that tension is by centering joy and remembering and reclaiming. And so we definitely acknowledge our history because that's something that is not done um, and it needs to happen, especially when we talk about healing. Like we have to acknowledge the trauma. We have to acknowledge our history. And that's something that America does not like to do. And so in a centering joy, we are in a lot of ways going back in history and highlighting the things that are joyous, the things that did nourish us, the things that did sustain us to have a picture that also is like a foil to what we understand as our kind of environmental or land histories. Um, And so I think it's, we are just coming from a place of optimism and celebration. Um, We literally have this tote that has like, remember, reclaim, repair. Like it's just all of these re's. It's all about re, you know? And we actually call our community the Black Regenerators (laughs) internally. And I really believe that we are regenerating our cultural connections to the natural world. And so for us, we balance this tension and we grapple with it by acknowledging, but not kind of wallowing in it, but also painting a picture that shows us that we've been sustainable, we've been connected to the natural world, and this is a part of our healing. This is a part of Black liberation. I want to get into like this piece from like birthing a movement, but I just want to know a little bit more you, because you said remembering, and so now I'm thinking about I really want to know what was like that first sort of like moment and memory that sort of triggered for you, like, oh, blackness and greenness are like these two things that are so inextricably linked and like the relationship isn't so much like there's a border between them, but like they almost create like this ecotone where like it's a completely new just environment and relationship. And I know a little bit about you, it's like already in my head, I'm like, there are probably so many moments where like the outdoors sort of inner mm-hmm. blackness, like for example, I know you have like ties with like the AKA shout out to them. And like in my head <laughs> about this like history of like strolling, especially like in public spaces, outdoors, mm-hmm. that feels like such an interesting, just like, um, usurpation of like public space and just black mm-hmm. being like, we're going to do this black aspect thing in this out mm-hmm. and take up this space and not care. Um, but yeah, I want to know for you, what was sort of like that first moment where you're like, oh, I get it. Like this marriage of like queerness and blackness is clicking for me and it's very visible. Yeah, I think it started with me in a lot of ways unearthing my own land history and thinking back to childhood and uh, my family, both sides of my family are from South Carolina. And I have fond memories of playing in the sand and like 
coming inside at the end of a long day, being outside and just washing down this like rust colored clay, you know, down the drain and clogging up the drain. And I have fond memories of riding through the country and getting watermelons and boiled peanuts off the side of the road in the summer and like looking up and only seeing trees for miles as we were traveling up I-95. It's just really remembering all of the ways that my family, um, my grandmother, my aunties were very much connected to the natural world. And that was something that was a part of me. Um, My dad used to take us fishing. My mom would tell me stories about, she grew up in the country in South Carolina of like her and her siblings in the middle of the night going to the next door neighbor's watermelon patch and like busting them open. And they've been, I know she shouldn't have been doing that, but I'm telling her business, but busting these like ripe watermelons open. And they were so ripe that like a little kid could just like, you know, tap them and they would just like gush with like all of this sweet juice and, you know, all of that meat. And it was warm from the heat of the day. Like I have all of these stories and I started making the connections when I literally was like, hold on. When I think back to my history, there are all of these moments where blackness and greenness already connected. Um, even in, you know, I grew up actually in Texas and my mom would take us to the park and, and we would go outside and, you know, cookouts. That's such a huge thing. That's a part of black culture, literally going to a park, cooking out or in the backyard. And it's just, again, it's about like, thinking back and even in the present, but also thinking back to all the ways that Black people are already connected to the natural world. And as I started doing that remembering, I was like, hold on, this is nothing new. Like, this is who we are. And so, yeah, I think it was just about me retracing my land history and beginning to also trace our collective land history to see that those connections already existed. No, I love that. And I think that's such a powerful call for like anyone who's listening. It's like really just like, excavate all of those stories and like ask questions you know uh, of your elders and aunts and uncles and be like so what were those moments where like that sort of intersection was like really clear and visible I think mm-hmm. um, just going back to this idea of like healing I think so much healing could come out of that and like mm-hmm. like curiosity and sort of thinking through how do I initiate like my own intimacy with like the earth and I kind of want to pivot to like dive a little more deeply in thinking about earth and color as being like this vanguard of a movement. And I really want to unpack what that entails. And one of the first things I thought about when I was prepping for this conversation was um, I feel like this specific movement may be like uncomfortable for certain people. And I'm mostly thinking about like white people within environmental movements and not to center them too much but um when I first learned about your work I thought explicitly about this memory I had from undergrad I went to um a PWI it had like a green club that was like really focused for some reason on recycling and there was a moment where one of the club members a white person um was like yeah I love being in this space because in this space I don't have to think about race. And I was like, whoa, that's one very bold, but also kind of like ill-informed. Like Mm -hmm. we can have a conversation about the environment and sustainability without talking about the impact of race. So for you, how do you and your team sort of like navigate um, 
a lot of people who kind of don't really see like race and identity as being a part of movements. Because for some people, it's kind of like, I'm just here to recycle and save some trees. Like this is all, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all these other things. Um, How do you, yeah. How do you navigate that? Yeah. The way we navigate it is just to tell our histories and tell our stories. That's, that's really it. I never hide what earth and color is about. And in a lot of ways, especially in this moment, I've been empowered to just speak my truth and to hold the environmental movement accountable for the ways that they've erased our histories and our culture um, and cultures in general. Um, And so the ways I, I navigate it is I'm honest, I'm empathetic and I'm, you know, I come from a place of love and care, especially if people are coming from a place of love and care, which is often the case, but I definitely am, uh, very much the the person who's like, well, no, let's talk about that, actually. Well, this is about race and this is why. Um, and, you know, just in the same way that I told my story about my experience at Stanford and environmental apathy, I use those same words. I use the same story. I don't change my story for anyone. And it gives, it opens up a conversation. And through those conversations, I think there's a lot of mindset shift, but for people who, you know, just want to recycle, look, that's not going to save climate change. I'm sorry (laughs) by itself. Um, And so I think they'll get on board eventually, but you know, I'm not here to coddle people. (laughs) I love that. And I know earlier before recording, we're talking a little bit about this idea of like keeping a movement all and we're mostly talking about like funding and money um and what's so just like fabulous and amazing about earth and color is that it is something that is the artifact and creation of black people people of color uh mostly keeping bipoc black people especially in mind as being the main sort of recipients of like everything that earth and color is doing and creating Mm -hmm. when it comes to this piece of like uh making all this sustainable um that might involve like going to donors and funders who may not be a part of these communities so when you're thinking about the thesis of earth and color and thinking about who's producing and is a part of that team and also thinking about how what you're doing has to exist within these larger systems that may involve people who don't look like us and have our experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, again, how are you navigating that? And how do you um, just sort of sit in that? Yeah, it's it's something that I'm actively working through myself. Um, one of my mentors told me that I have to be thoughtful about who I get funding from. And, you know, I have to make sure that the people that I'm bringing into the earth and color ecosystem are allies and accomplices and aren't just trying to give money to say that they gave money and are actually trying to do the work to heal and liberate um, the land and, and people. And, and so one, our team is mostly black people. Um, and that is something that I have been really committed to, um, ensuring that our team is black people and the people that we collaborate with are black indigenous and people of color first and foremost. Um, 
But also if someone who is white is a part of the team or is working with us and is a part of our ecosystem, that they are understanding that our voices are centered in this space. And if they're excited about that vision and thesis, then they can be a part of what we're doing. Um, so this is not an exclusive space, but we're definitely creating a space that is safe for us. Um, and whoever wants to be around that and whoever wants to help create that space can be involved. I think on the funder side, it's, it's difficult because there are power dynamics involved in that with who's giving you funding and, you know, who you rely on for your financial sustainability, emotional sustainability, and all of that stuff, it's all wrapped up into it. And so it's definitely something that I'm struggling with, but I'm being thoughtful about who I'm partnering with and in those partnerships, creating space for learning and unlearning. And if people are interested in doing that work, I'm happy to partner with them, um, especially if they're compensating me for the education I'm giving them. <laughs> okay, I heard that. And I think that's such an interesting point about around allyship and accomplices. And when I think about any historical movement, especially Black-led movements, there have always been white people who have been like mm-hmm. incredible accomplices and allies. And for you, for Daryl Scott, how do you define an earth and color accomplice? If there is someone who is not a person of color who is sort of like, I get it. I want to be a part of this work. Um, what would you say to them? Like what, how would you describe sort of like that ideal accomplice? Like what do they have to do? What do they have to understand to be a part of the earth and color movement in this space? Yeah, I think when I think of all of the accomplices that are in my life, all of them have in a lot of ways made themselves uncomfortable um, and have committed to doing the work and have been in conversation with me in a way that's like relationship-based and not just kind of topical and optical. Um, And they also have committed to helping to shift resources to support the work. And I think that it's one thing to say, oh, I'm an ally, you know, I support your work. But when you talk about doing the work, it's making connections, it's giving money, (laughs) it's making those introductions that really shed light on the work that I'm doing and and putting your own perspective and saying why it's important. Um, It's intervening when people are being problematic. And so kind of supporting me in helping to educate people. Um, but it's also like, you know, volunteering your time. And so not just like financial resources, but, um, you know, I've had so many people who've not only given money, but, you know, pro bono support, whether it's legal or design or anything like that. So there have been a lot of people who want this work to thrive and have done a range of things to support that work. But I think the biggest thing is about you know, being committed to shifting power um, and being okay with being uncomfortable. I'm glad you brought up the uncomfortability part. When I think about spaces like this, like I feel so protective of them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you're someone who's like entering the space. Like, I think you have to meet like a certain standard and a part of that standard does involve like a little bit of risk. I don't think it's possible to be an ally who still feels like comfortable and Mm-hmm. In a certain sense, you know, I think of like people, you know, a lot of people consider to be like John Brown to sort of be like this pinnacle of like 
white accomplice shit. And I'm like, that nigga was like burning shit down. And absolutely (laughs) (laughs) not playing with (laughs) y'all. But beyond like movements being sort of um, filled with people who are leading and like supporting and like these ally and accomplice roles, I also think about movements as being iterative, right? Um, Sort of earth and color is not so much the beginning of a story, but you're ultimately in the middle of the story, right? Like I'm sure mm-hmm. you sort of see earth and color as having a bunch of like predecessors that like helped inform your work. And I'm sure like in 10, 20, 15, um, 50 years, you're going to hope that like other movements are grown out of earth and colors. So mm-hmm. I just want to like situate your work within like this broader arc. And I know want to know for you, what movements do you consider the sort of like be the predecessors, like the earth and color movement? And, you know, thinking about earth and color as being an ancestor one day, <laughs> do you hope will come out of the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I, early on, I actually struggled with this because I felt like earth and color was kind of at this interesting intersection that I hadn't seen before. But then I came across healing justice um, and this term and this movement that was, you know, coined by the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective. And they're based in Atlanta. And so I got to say the names, you know, we talk about ancestors and people who came before. I got to give them their props and give them their roses and things. But you know, when I think about healing justice, it's when I stumbled upon the work of like like the healing justice work, I realized that it really is rooted in healing trauma. And it's actually radical. Like when we talk about like radical and like getting to the root, um, I found that healing justice did a, a wonderful job or does a wonderful job of acknowledging the the traumas and the violences and just the system that informs the ways that people of color or people with marginalized identities or people who've been oppressed, whatever you want to say, um, just like acknowledges those experiences and does work to heal. And I felt like in the environmental movement, there was no conversation about healing. Um, and And so I think even though I will say like Earth and Color came out of the environmental movement and that it came out of my experience in the environmental movement, but I feel like I'm bringing a healing justice lens. And so I definitely see um, that movement and and the work of Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective as something that inspires me. Um, And I think when I think of what I hope Earth and Color inspires, I hope that we just inspire more of what we're doing. I mean, I, I really, I feel like it's, I've actually never been asked this question. And I think it's because I've been so heads down in earth and color. But when I think of the vision, I just want more people unearthing their history, sparking their earth curiosity, feeling liberated and connected to the natural world. And I just want to, more people who are contributing to this picture that I see in my head of, you know, like you said, like Black Planet, like a place where it's like just us, you know, living healthy, sustainable, regenerative. You know, early on, I said, I didn't see myself, my culture, my people in those healthy, sustainable futures that were being envisioned. And 
I see a whole bunch of us creating that healthy, sustainable future for our community. Um, so I'm actually really excited to see what kind of spawns from um, Earth and Color. Thank you for that. Um, all that was stunning and gorgeous. And I got so excited that you mentioned healing justice. I was actually reading a zine that my friend sent me called Together at the Edge of the World on Healing Justice and include interviews with some of the group that you mentioned. So I just want to give a shout out to Jess Kara Page and Tamika Middleton and Paulina Helen Priyanis Gomez for just doing fabulous, incredible work when it comes to healing justice in that entire movement. Um, and it's like wild to think that like that movement has probably only been around for like a decade at this point mm -hmm. already. Like folks like yourself are kind of like picking up the mantle and really figuring out like where that praxis and framework can sort of take us. Um, so thank you for doing that labor with your team to sort of like expand what tools we already have at our disposal. And I mm. want to end on you. And I know Earth and Color has this very sort of educational tone where it is very much about how do we reinform ourselves about our ancestries and lineages and unearth our own land stories to really get to a place where, again, going back to Savior of Remembrance, we are reminding ourselves of all these amazing legacies that um, really gesture towards Black folks, like you said, we've been sustainable since the beginning and will continue to be out into the future, whatever that looks like. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to know, how have you been educated and how have you been changed by the work that you're doing with Earth and Color? Um, and I'm specifically curious to know, how has your relationship both individually to greenness and blackness change? Like what has been disrupted, what's been destroyed maybe, what's been shifted, flipped, reversed, all of that. Um, when it comes to those two concepts on their own and together, um, how has your thinking shifted? Yeah, it's totally shifted. It's totally transformed. I think when I was a baby in the environmental movement in college, I always felt like I was kind of adding Blackness to greenness. I always felt like, okay, here's the environmental movement. And then since I'm a Black woman and this is my perspective, I'm just going to add some flavor to it. Um, and I think now I don't see those things as separate at all. Like I very much see greenness as a part of Black culture. Um, and I always say it's like niggas in nature. Like it's just like we our nature. We are a part of nature. We've been a part of nature. We will be a part of nature. And I, I think us reconnecting to that history and reconnecting to the fact that we are nature is a part of our healing. And so I think for me, I've been transformed in, I mean, I always used to do this and it's funny. I have a background in earth science and sustainability science. So you would think I'm like just walking down the street, like, Oh, that's an oak tree. And Oh, you know, this squirrels, you know, but I, I have just like a heightened awareness of 
the ways that I'm connect connected to the natural world around me. I am like touching trees and I'm observing like, oh, like, you know, this flower wasn't blooming last time I walked past here. Like, oh, this is an amazing pollinate. Like I'm just so much more receptive and open to the living beings that are around me. Um, I think something else that as I've been kind of bringing greenness and blackness together in my life and realizing that I am a part of nature, I've also been just getting rid of hierarchies. I feel like oftentimes in the environmental movement, we see humans as kind of being above the natural world. We're taming the natural world. Um, but it's really about, you know, being stewards and being in community with the natural world. And so as I've been honestly exploring more indigenous literature, Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, we should definitely drop that in the show notes, um, reading that book um, and understanding indigeneity from her perspective helped me to understand my own connection to the natural world. And so, um, but yeah, when I think of greenness and blackness, it's no longer separate. It's, it's the same thing for me. I love that. And I think that's the perfect way to end this episode. So Daryl, just thank you so much. This was such just a rich conversation and I'm so grateful that we were able to archive just like all that you offered. So I'm just like holding so much gratitude for you, just like saying yes to this space, being a part of it and just like filling it up with so much. And I think um, it's going to give all of us homework, right? I think for Black <laughs> thinking about, you know, how do we reclaim these histories and like reestablish like those connections. And for non-BIPOC folks, like how do you show up and be a part of these movements in a way that feels respectful and reverential? And that sort of, again, like puts you in a place of like risk to really achieve liberation, not only for us as humans, but the more than human world. So thank you for just like offering everything that you just offered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and before we end and where can people find you and the work that you're doing yes you can find us at earthandcolor.co on instagram and our website www.earthandcolor.co so before we finish the episode and close out daryl has a final offering they're going to read a small excerpt from the earth and color publication radical so with that said daryl take it away so this is an excerpt from an invitation to take root which is the letter from the editor in botany the radical is a catalyst it is the first sprout to appear when a seed is developing into a plant the radical anchors the seedling in its infancy and becomes the plant's primary root system, providing stability and supporting the plant's health and longevity. In homage, we offer radical, an invitation for you to take root. Racism, oppression, and systemic injustice have partially severed our historical connection to the natural world. The nourishment and liberation found in nature have been replaced with painful histories and inherited fear, telling us that Black people don't go camping, that Black people don't eat kale, that conservation, preservation, nature engagement, and land stewardship aren't a part of Black identities and livelihoods. We know that is not true. We know that we are deeply connected to our natural environments. Radical exists to remind us of this truth. It reminds us who we come from, where we come from, and how we've been living. This is really why Earth and Color exists, to turn inherited environmental apathy and what I like to call 
earth curiosity, our innate connection to the earth. Through these pieces, we are deepening our cultural ties to the land and regenerating our kinship with the natural world, knowing that this will not only heal our bodies, but it will also heal our families, our community, and the earth we inhabit. Radical is the fertile ground for your personal germination. As you take root, Radical will be your toolkit, your workbook, your guide, and your companion. Let the germination begin. Thank you for listening to Loam Listen. Again, I'm your host, Amiria Freeman, and this episode was edited by Isaac Silk with music provided by Isaac Silk. If you liked what you heard, please rate this episode, maybe leave a comment, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss more yummy content. Also, share this episode with someone you love and maybe explore other episodes you haven't heard just yet. Until next time. Thank you.